three, two, one, and welcome to Sounding Point Podcast, episode four, and I'm pleased to announce my next guest here, and that is Patrick Galvin. He's a friend of mine from San Francisco Conservatory of Music. We've uh, been through the trenches together and in Conservatory and Rubin Institute of Music Criticism, and Patrick is an accomplished performer and teacher, and here he is. Thank you for joining me, Patrick. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be having this conversation with you. So I wanted to ask you today, how have you been dealing with this pandemic? I know every uh, musician has had different approaches, different challenges, so how has it impacted you and how have you been dealing with it? Well, there's been ups and downs as everybody has been having. I think early on, um, I was disappointed because I had some exciting performances coming up that I was really looking forward to in the end of March and beginning of April. That week I was supposed to fly to the East Coast, I'm in San Francisco, and I was supposed to fly and play a few concerts um, in New Jersey and New York, including the 92nd Street Y, which is a really famous uh, venue uh, and also kind of like a feather in your cap as I think a young performer. So obviously I was disappointed that that is sort of indefinitely postponed. But I have to say in general, I enjoy not having to do too much like commuting or um, other things that would take away from practice time. It's kind of nice. I feel like sh relatively quickly I got into the mode of, okay, I'm basically stuck at home. I have my instrument, I have music, uh, and I have so much more time to practice. And I think I found a good path, but it's getting a little old. So, yeah. Man, that's, that is so painful. And, and Cortez San Francisco also had some some of our most awaited and anticipated things that we were get, looking forward to getting canceled at the last minute. And um, yeah, you know, I know it's um, that way for so many musicians. And I guess you and I are lucky in that we've had these opportunities, but we also teach at the same time. So mm -hmm. our entire livelihoods aren't dependent on performing. And um, but that still, it doesn't mean that it's any less of a blow when those things go away. Um, of course, yeah. And it is good to have teaching. I mean, that was only, I was really speaking from my perspective as a performer and those performances were kind of the biggest loss, but teaching continued and continues uh, all uh, digital over the internet. And I think it's been a lot more successful than I might've expected if you had asked me four months ago, hey, if all teaching went online, would it be productive? Um, I think it actually is pretty productive. So I am thankful to have that. Um, my income from that is still coming in. So it's a good, it's not so bad, so. Yeah. Uh, what have you done in terms of musical activity? Like, have you been able to do any projects or performances since the pandemic started? Well, a couple things. I suppose I've only really played one true live streamed show. Uh, my dad is in a club uh, with some friends. I mean, it's like a pretty prestigious club and they in normal times have performances frequently, like every week. Um, oh, you know the club, the Bohemian Club. 
Yes. Yes. And they had an event. Podcast is going to be taken down for us mentioning it, but yeah. I know. I was sort of hoping to avoid mentioning <laughs> the name, but there you go. But uh, no, about a month ago, I guess it was, they had a, an event on like a Tuesday evening. They asked me to perform. So I did it right here on this computer in my practice slash dining room. And it went okay. I played uh, Isai Sonata Number no. 4 and a movement from Bach D minor partita. And I spoke a little bit about it. So I gave a short but sort of typical performance. Uh, outside of that, um, I've started studying with a teacher named Simon James. You and I were talking about this before, but he um, has been giving me lessons over Zoom and invited me to this academy he's teaching at that's online called the Sounding Point Academy. It's awesome. so, I honestly think is scandalous because I had no idea it was even a thing. And I named my podcast Sounding Point Podcast. I, I foresee a lengthy legal battle in the future. But Yeah, exactly. I think I'm pretty sure you probably came up with the name first. So as, as far as I can tell, you know, this Sounding Point Academy was a kind of last minute thing designed to be on Zoom. So Anyways, it has been very fruitful and I've really enjoyed uh, doing that. In terms of projects, um, I've obviously been learning some new music, which is great. And I have another commission going, just started during this quarantine shelter in place time. Uh, a composer here in San Francisco is writing me a solo partita for violin. And I think maybe in other times we wouldn't have gone for solo partita, but just because it's so hard to meet with other people, we've settled on this uh, solo piece. So that's kind of neat. I just got the first movement the other day. Oh, awesome. And so, yeah, it's keeping me busy. That's amazing. Yeah, um, wh which composer? Stefan Swick, okay. who teaches at the San Francisco Conservatory where we went, and he wrote me a piece before, like a year and a half ago, that we actually had a, a, a nice amount of success with, played it a few places and played it at SF Music Day at Herb's Theater. And um, yeah, it was just a successful commission project. So he was saying he wanted to write a solo piece. I was saying I want to play a solo piece. So it worked out, yeah. Did you know Stefan? Yeah, a little bit, cool. Mm -hmm. and he's awesome. And shout out to Stefan Swick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Probably listening to this podcast right now, so yeah. Really, who isn't? Is yeah, exactly. No, but um, I was gonna. I wanted to bring that up because um, I think coming out of school, speaking for myself, I graduated in 2016, and um, I hadn't really established myself as a player yet. And um, I think that it's probably pretty common for people graduating in general, but um, maybe particularly so for musicians, where there's almost a feeling of you're in this very uh, nurturing environment that everyone cares about the same music you do. And it's like this hothouse environment. Everyone's practicing hours a day. Everyone's doing studio class. So it's very intense and exciting and uh, nerve wracking. And then you get out into the real world and you're sort of realizing, well, um, <laughs> that is not how the world really works. And now all that structure is kind of, it's disappeared. You kind of, I mean, it certainly, um, music school is a, 
amazing opportunity to have that environment, but it is not at all, you, you lose a lot of that when you get out into the real world. And I thought that really early on, when in our conversations after graduating, you did a better job than most of, of providing a structure for yourself after you left in that you've um, kind of gotten to the point of being able to create almost cr not not create opportunities for yourself but you've gotten really good at um at basically forwarding your your performing activities and and um commissioning new works and i don't know so i just wanted to see how what your thoughts are on kind of your um artistic direction how do you set your own course like that you're not i feel like um a lot of times the attitude after leaving music school, the stereotypical music school student is going to be like, okay, time to prepare for auditions. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but, but you, you seem to go a different direction. So I wanted to just ask you about that. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a sort of couple components to that sort of to work backwards through what you were asking. I am not interested in playing in orchestra and so in that sense, I guess that's a little atypical because I suppose if you were super practical about it, that's kind of what music school is really preparing you for, especially as a string player like us. I mean, you know, every symphony, big or small, has like, I don't know, 15 to 20 violins at least in the section. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. It kind of makes sense that that's the direction I think people go. Plus, orchestral music's amazing and and a hundred people playing together at a time a Mahler symphony or, or you know Brahms symphonies or anything uh is an awesome thing to be a part of and I know that feeling and I was in the youth orchestra here and obviously played at the conservatory in the orchestra but it also wasn't for me I didn't not enjoy it but I knew that like as an artist I didn't want to spend my life doing that so it might have been helpful for me to know that and not have to ever seriously consider auditioning for an orchestra. So auditions were never in the cards for me. And I guess I had decided at some point, maybe I was still even in the conservatory, but that if I want to be a performer, no matter what, I just have to be performing often, whether it's small venues, big venues, gigs for money or gigs for not money uh though i'm not a generally a fan of you know musicians playing for no money i just wanted to keep my sort of performance chops up so that i knew okay if i do out of the blue get some kind of random opportunity i want to be ready i want to be performing every week so that you know three weeks from now if somebody says oh someone canceled because you played then i'm ready to do it because that's what i want to be doing so it was more a mindset of keeping myself ready in case an opportunity arose and I think it is fair to say that I created opportunities for myself because, um, I mean, I reached out to everywhere and I was cold emailing and cold calling places that I probably had no business calling. And then including other places like uh, retirement homes and stuff, I didn't decide, okay, this is exactly the thing I want to be doing. I want to play like medium and big sized halls with, you know, $50 a ticket or whatever. Obviously I want to but I was open to performing basically anywhere. Um, and that way I kind of built a repertoire. I got comfortable and I kind of got to experiment 
And I guess my strength, now that I'm thinking through it, was having this somewhat methodical approach. Like a performance would come up, let's say at a retirement facility, right? Kind of low stakes, but I would set my repertoire. I would play it. If I could, I'd bring a recorder, like my Zoom recorder. And then I would kind of do a debrief afterwards. I'd listen to the recording. I'd make notes. I would consider everything like a stepping stone to some sort of like future ideal concert that I guess I've never really gotten to or maybe never will. So that was... About to 92nd Street Y and then all of a sudden... <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say like this general approach of sort of stay ready and then hope you get an opportunity had kind of just been working out. And the 92nd Street Y was like the best example of that where I was going to play with our former colleague or music school buddy, uh, Michael Rosen. And so he had sort of set up, he's a pianist and composer and he lives in New Jersey and he had set up these concerts. He's been a real self-starter too. I think he might even have a podcast as well. I don't know. But uh, he's, he had gotten to a point where he had been raising money for a concert series enough that he could fly me out from San Francisco, etc. He had some connection to the 92nd Street Y, some woman who runs it, and they had a cancellation. And it was like a Friday matinee. So, you know, not like Saturday night, our name would be in lights or whatever, but it was the 92nd Street Y, it was a matinee on a Friday. And could we fill in? And we could, because I was gonna be, you know, so that's, um, that's the approach. And I had a couple other opportunities like that. Like I played a concert, and there happened to be someone there that was connected to Stockton Symphony, who was on the board of Stockton Symphony. And that, long story short, got me this opportunity to play Mozart Concerto um, with like a subset of the Stockton Symphony uh, last January, so over a year now. But anyways, that's kind of been my approach generally. And um, also I love to practice, I'm a practicer. So, I'm not a person who thinks like, oh, I got to slog through all this work just to have those, you know, 90 minutes on stage on Saturday. I kind of like the methodical work anyway. So having mini performances or whatever I can get along the way is kind of all of a piece with like practicing, learning new rep, trying things, etc. I don't know. I don't know if that explains. I think it's but. a great explanation. And it's, I can definitely attest to your, um, to your uh, love of practicing and love of method. I think that's one, one way we connected early on at music school. We, we had a, uh, a uh, early morning practice club, which was, it, it started at maybe four or five people and it qu quickly dwindled down to Patrick and I, when I could wake up on time at least. Yeah. We would show up at seven or eight in the morning and um, we would I mainly practice scales in all sorts of different ways. And that tradition is somewhat, um, it's somewhat uh, continued in much less uh, in much less formal fashion uh, through uh, periodic playthroughs here and then. So and I think every time we talk it, the conversation always kind of turns to sort of practice method and and sort of ideas about practicing. So that's a good um, that's a good um, segue to talking a little bit more about the the Sounding Point Academy. So oh, yeah. I think, um, Kind of, can you explain that and what people are involved with that and what have you kind of gotten out of that? Yeah, so as I mentioned, I sort of developed this connection with Simon James, 
who's a teacher over at the conservatory. Um, and he, he is on the faculty there. They have a small faculty, I don't know, maybe five people. And uh, I don't really know the structure, but it seems to be run by Robert Lipset, who teaches down at USC, who's a very famous teacher. And he has the Yasha Heifetz chair of violin or whatever. So I think he's sort of um, a very well-known American teacher down there in LA. So he kind of runs it. And then a couple other people who seem to have studied with him, this woman named Michaela Belin, B-E-L-E-N, Belin. I have to say, I don't really know how to pronounce her name properly, probably. But, um, and an another woman named Fabiola Kim. And they're sort of younger, like older than us, but I don't know, maybe in their 40s or something. Young, promising teachers who have amazing students. Uh, and they seem to be connected to University of Michigan, I think. And then there's Simon James, um, He's assistant concert master of Seattle. And he also, he seems to almost specialize in like teen phenomenons. Like he has all these young students who are incredible uh, playing like, you know, all the Paganini Caprices and all the Isai Sonatas and, and stuff like that. So um, that's, I hope I'm not leaving someone important out. I know uh, Nathan Cole, who we talked about before is maybe on the faculty or at least sort of like a guest. He gives a few lectures and then they also bring in guest artists like Augustine Hadelich, um, Stephen Jacku, and uh, James Ennis was there. Oh my gosh, you just so, named three of my idols. <laughs> I know, I mean, me too. Like Augustine Hadelich for years now, I've been like watching all his videos. I mean, trying to teach myself his tricks or whatever. And uh, it feels really serendipitous. So. They started this, you know, they designed it to be on Zoom because sort of everybody was stuck wherever they were. It has been the most enjoyable. It's been two weeks now and there's one more week. It's just the like information per minute of my days now has just gone through the roof. I mean, I have this notebook here actually like, and I just finished it yesterday. Like I'm literally on my last page. Just, I mean, every session, I just, endless good ideas. Um, and it's been super helpful. So I think, you know, to connect it to our previous conversation, leaving school is so challenging because you don't have this constant feedback. You don't have a structure, you don't have a community helping you kind of take the next step, helping you learn, you know, helping you kind of put the mirror up to yourself always. And that's why I was looking for a new teacher and found Simon James and man, what a 180 to now be in this Sounding Point Academy. I'm definitely on the older side. I mean, there's some like teenage kids in there and stuff. Um, but just, I'm looking to solve problems that arise in pieces I'm working on. And man, these, all this faculty seems to have all the answers. I mean, they just have such good ideas, um, really nitty gritty technical stuff. And it's been super helpful. So amazing. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I think, um, it's i mean i did something um similar nathan cole um who's the one of the concert masters of the la harmonic um he's a very well-known online violin teacher as well and he ran something called the violympics um violympic trials and he has a i think a basically summer-long class that's um that basically there was like a week-long intensive class for and I think 
it's definitely been interesting to see how violin teachers are using this um, opportunity. I don't know if you want to call it that, but I think different ways of conveying information and different um, forms of master classes and instruction are happening that are more distributable and maybe more scalable. And it's interesting to see that you, you, these really top flight teachers and performers are, are using these tools. Um, and yep. uh, Do you, Well, the other thing I'll just, while you're saying that, uh, that I guess I left out was during this pandemic, I could feel that my sort of performance muscle wasn't getting used. And, and like I said, my kind of overall goal is to like keep performance ready and keep performing because when you, you know, put yourself in the performance situation, it feels so different from practicing that you need to give yourself as much opportunity to do that, to really learn and, and kind of organize your practice. So it gets you ready for performance. The other little thing I've been doing, just like with my iPhone, I have like, I don't know, iPhone 10 or something like a fancy one that has a better camera than like anything ever before. Um, and like a little tripod and I've been making concerts for individual people, just like a short concerts. My idea was like after dinner, you're, you're in the shelter in place. You don't have any entertainment. Here's a 15 minute concert that I like put on YouTube just for you. So I did, I started kind of like with my parents, uh, with like family, friends, some musicians, things like that. And it was a good way for me to like keep performing. I kind of had this grand idea of, doing it live or like recorded day of, and then giving myself like a schedule, similar to like a tour schedule. So I'd play something like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and I'd have picked like my parents, my parents, neighbors, and some friends. And then I get to play maybe the same program even, kind of like as if I were on tour. So anyways, I didn't quite get to that stage, but that was another way that, yeah, like you can adapt to being stuck in your dining room but still give yourself like a performance schedule. So that is really cool. I had not thought of that before because I've seen a lot of different um, performers, including these big names that some of whom you mentioned who are finding ways of, of performing or live streaming and trying to keep that experience alive. But, but almost what you're doing is you're almost looking at it more from a, um, from a maintaining the discipline of performing um, perspective where you like as a performer, obviously practicing is a huge part of it, but then the performing aspect of it is non-replaceable. So you're trying to find ways of, of not losing the, the live aspect of, and the benefit to your own playing over time through this pandemic. That's really interesting. And it was funny, in Sounding Point Academy, the first guest artist who gave a masterclass was James Ennis, who's brilliant, very accomplished. He was talking about this, issue and he said something i thought was really funny he said when shelter in place sort of ends or when we get a vaccine or, or you know concerts come back on a normal schedule he said i think there's going to be a lot of bad concerts <laughs> and, and his point was even for himself who's highly accomplished clearly very confident in his skills and stuff he needs to be performing all the time to feel comfortable and I can't remember what he said. I mean, he must be around, let's say, 50 or something. And he basically said, for the past 30 years, I perform, you know, many times a week. I never take this long of a break, you know, months because of this quarantine without performing. And that's why I'm so comfortable with it. And you need that. And this is something I try and talk to my students about, too, 
the sort of student model, especially when you're younger, of play like three times a year or something, it's just not enough, right? And, and it's, it's non-replaceable, like you say. Like, even these days when I give performances, if I have what I would consider like an important performance on a Saturday, I'll try and give myself like lower stakes performances on like Friday and Thursday leading up to it. And I learned so much in the probably 72 hours leading up to a performance when I do my practice performances. In a way, I always think, God, here I was practicing for three months and I should have just been performing for three months because I would have just gotten right to the point. Like what doesn't work? What works? What do I need to solve? Yeah. Uh, so I find that sometimes I, um, it's, it can be something as simple as a fingering or something that I'm working on in practice. And then I learn during the performance. It's like, man, I spent so much time on this fingering. And then I'll like, I'll come back to it. And I'm like, what if I just changed? It's like, I spent so much time on this thing that didn't matter at all. And like affected my performance negatively. It's like, yeah, performing, you learn what works and what doesn't in, in a much more uncompromising way. Yeah. And I know one of the things we were maybe going to talk about today was mentors. Um, and so I don't want to like jump the gun on that, but I, one thing that I have been lucky to have developed since I left school was I do still have a few mentors in my life, kind of like teachers or older people, um, much more experienced. And one of them is a pianist named Bill Jones, uh, or his, sorry, his full name is William Corbett Jones. Uh, I'm lucky enough to know him as Bill, but he's a really um, uh, accomplished pianist and he's in his 90s now and he's incredibly sharp and still a brilliant player played everything performed with like every famous violinist for example accompanied them and before pandemic time i was going over to his house sometimes once a week probably more on average like once a month and we would play through pieces i didn't know like mozart sonatas beethoven sonatas basically the sonata violin piano repertoire he was sort of teaching me. And one of the things um, he told me, we were talking about this exact thing, like fingering, for example, and what happens in performance. Obviously it's different on piano, but he basically said, when in doubt, just use the simplest fingering. Like you need it to be bulletproof for performance. And if it's overly complicated, it's gonna be that much trickier in performance and make it safe. So I'm obviously paraphrasing. I'm sure he had a much more eloquent way of putting it. But um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean when you think, man, I bent over backwards to make this one shift super expressive. And it, was it worth it? I don't know. So you learn so much in performance. I, I, I'll, um, I do want to um, talk about mentors here in a second. I, I, as a transition, I found interesting because I've always had a weak fourth finger. Uh, oh, yeah. don't we all, right? <laughs> Sorry, my, my audio is a little weird for a second. Okay, yeah, so I've always had a weird fourth finger. So especially over the past few years, I've been really um, making sure that I'm not, um, that I'm not being overly, uh, I'm not making allowances. I don't take the easy way. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the fourth finger fingering, and it's been helpful for me developing it. But I saw the recent um, video that Augustine Hadley had for the songs my mother taught me. Yeah. He doesn't use the fourth finger once. Yeah. In the whole, 
peace. And he's like one of the greatest violinists ever. And, you know, you, you know, he could. It's not like he can't. But it was so funny to me because I'm like working over here and like, oh, you, you d never give it a break. You, you need to treat it like the others. If, if, if you feel it is a weakness, it's something you do. But he just was like, oh, it's color. I'm going to use third finger for color like the whole time. So that was. He, and, and he's also been doing this series called Ask Augustine. I don't know if you saw, it's like on Instagram or that's where I've been seeing it. And it's little videos on like one technical thing. Like I think the most recent one was like how to avoid E string whistling or something, but he did one or maybe two on fingering. And he talked about this very thing. He said, I have a particularly short fourth finger. So I basically avoid it when I can, like that's the hand I have. So I avoid it. Um, so yeah, I know it's, it's funny. I think as an artist, I think probably at whatever stage, but certainly at our level where we're not like the greatest living superstars of all time. Um, it's like once you get that validation from someone famous or it's, you know, like after Augustine says it, you feel allowed to avoid fourth fingers, <laughs> yeah. you know, whereas like, I suppose we could have just made that practical choice to start with. But. Yeah. It takes yeah. pressure. Off. I mean, it's, it's similar. Like I, um, I made a, uh, the opposite fingering just when I was a kid, I was playing Barber Concerto and there was this one place where I was playing open E where my uh, teacher wanted me to play four, fourth finger. And um, I was, I justified myself doing open E because like, you can hear in the Itzhak Perlman recording that he uses open E. Yeah, right, and, exactly. Um, and my teacher said, well, do you think he couldn't do fourth finger if he, wa if he wanted to? I'm like, dang it. Yeah. Got you there. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's interesting stuff. I mean, obviously, it's one thing to talk about, like, Perlman compared to us or your teacher. I think through this a lot when I'm teaching from the Suzuki books or teaching my younger students and they play Bach, for example, or Vivaldi. Uh, you know, a lot of that, like, like, younger, especially Suzuki repertoire, comes from the Baroque, you know, earlier eras where they definitely were using the open strings. You know they weren't, you know, going up into fourth position to get some beautiful color. It was, you know, that, you know, now we know with historically informed research, that sound, it was all open strings when they could. And uh, Leopold Mozart's book, The Art of Violin Playing, is all about how the longer the string, the better the sound. So I run into this where Suzuki, you can tell, was sort of trying to teach the kids the fourth finger and avoids uh, some string crossings and things like that. But the Bach would have been open E every time, basically, you know, or the Vivaldi. So I struggle with that as a teacher too. Like, am I forcing my kids to use fourth finger just cause like, you know, when I was a kid, I went uphill both ways in the snow or whatever. I don't know. So <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, uh, a fib. It's like a fib you're telling the students like oh yes you will always be using your fourth finger on Bach Just right good for them to be able to do it but then they'll learn later actually <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's yeah teaching in general is full of those sort of I don't know so tell me about some of your um, your teachers and mentors I know when we were at the uh, conservatory you you were studying with Wei I was mm -hmm. with Tina um, who I hope to have on this podcast soon um, but yeah, tell me about your, uh, your teachers. And I know you studied with Camilla Wicks and just maybe some of your 
takeaways from some of your great teachers? Yeah, well, it's actually a really interesting time to be talking about this because yesterday morning, my very first violin teacher passed away, actually. So I grew up here in San Francisco and I studied with a man named Roy Oakley. He and his wife, Lynn, um, Roy, he went by Bud. So people who, like adults and people familiar with him called him Bud. But when I was a student, obviously it was Mr. Oakley. They were a brilliant husband and wife team. They really had the beginning stages and working with kids, they nailed it. And Mr. Oakley, I've obviously been thinking about this a lot in the last 24 hours or so. I'm eternally indebted to him. He obviously taught me the basic skills and techniques, but he mostly somehow convinced me that violin playing was so cool. And I remember when I was, I think only like seven, he played a recording, like an LP for me of Leonard Kogan, the uh, Soviet violinist playing Vuitton Violin Concerto Number no. 5. And I think, you know, I have a vague memory, but it, it, the point was he wanted me to hear the sound quality. And I know as a teacher, it's the hardest thing is to, to convince your students to go for a certain pure sound quality that's going to take them years to de develop. Um, so I have to say, like, I probably owe the most to Mr. Oakley. And he was the one somehow who made me feel like I wanted to practice hours a day and I loved it. So um, I worked with, with him and did really well. And I think when I was 10, I think I was 10 years old maybe or 11, I started doing some competitions and I won the Oakland East Bay Concerto Competition with Michael Morgan. And so I got to play Brook Concerto with the Oakland Symphony uh, as like a kid, you know, I was like 11 and that was really neat. Um, and I won some other small competitions around here, Bay Area and stuff like that. And it was at that time that some people recommended maybe I move on. And again, I feel like so many of the transitions, I was just in the right place, right time or got lucky. But I played for Camilla Wicks. Um, and Camilla is still alive. She's also in her 90s. And she was kind of winding down her career at the San Francisco Conservatory at the time. So she took myself and another kid my age named Corey Lee, who you may have met. His mom's a Suzuki teacher named Kathy Lee. Yeah. Famous. Yeah. Anyways, so Corey and myself were kind of like the last students of Camilla. She, she wasn't taking teenagers. She was teaching at the, at the college a little bit. And so she took us. And that really was next level for me at the time. I mean, it was really mind blowing. Like we worked on a Mozart concerto and she had a copy of the handwritten score, you know, and was referencing it and just like taking it to that really next level. And she was the first of my teachers who you realize how valuable it is for the teachers to have real performance experience. She was a child prodigy she kind of had like two careers because she was a child prodigy to, through her 20s. She kind of took a break, was mostly teaching, and then had a kind of second career of performing. And um, yeah, there, there's a, an album of five decades of live recordings, which is crazy to think about that long. So she was the first of my teachers where what I was getting was the kind of real 
inside baseball, like this is what works on stage. Do this fingering, not this one, because you're not going to make this shift when it's hot and you're sweaty. You know, she had all these tricks like rub almond oil on your fingerboard so that your fingers don't get sticky if you're a little bit sweaty. She, so she was just like so experienced that I was not only inspired, I literally had like little tips and tricks. Um, and I won another competition, I think, when I was like 15, 16, got to play Vuitton 5, which was really sweet, uh, with an orchestra. Um, but she was winding down, um, and she was kind of handing everybody over to Wei He. So Wei had come and studied with her at the conservatory, and then she kind of tapped him to take over the studio when he was really young. I think he was like 30. And... Um, so yeah, so I was taking lessons like with both of them, mostly way. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the beginning. And then, I mean, I can go on if you want me to go through till the present. Should I? Yeah. Okay, great, yeah. So I was working with way, totally different personality. Um, but we had that connection to Camilla. So he was kind of in this phase of sort of like the Camilla whisperer or something, you know, he was basically trying to teach Camilla's technique and insights, but through his own, you know, interpretation as a person. And then I got into Peabody uh, and was uh, working with Herbert Greenberg. Shout out to Mr. G. Go that, go, say again? I said shout out to Mr. G. I, yeah. I worked with Greenberg for a little bit. That's right. We had that weird connection too. So, um, yeah, so I worked with him and he also was another like nice step up for me. He had this standard, at least when I was working with him, was every freshman kind of went through this rite of passage where you had to be able to play all the three octave scales, every major minor key, octaves, thirds, sixths, you know, like all the basic, basic technical stuff that you kind of like, I know how to do that or whatever. He was hyper-focused on that with metronome markings. I mean, it must've been months that I only did scales with him. And um, so that's when I really like, you kind of shine a light on your technique and you say, can I really do all of it? Like all the thirds, every minor key, that was super helpful. Um, but on a personal level, it just like wasn't a good time for me. I don't know. I mean, like transition phases in life are always the hardest. And I think for me, leaving home, moving to Baltimore from San Francisco, um, I don't know. I just like was an unhappy person. I probably, I, I never sought diagnosis, but like, I think I likely probably would have been diagnosed with like depression at the time. I just wasn't like not dealing with these transitions well. Um, I was also studying at Johns Hopkins and I was on the track team and I was probably doing too much as well. I was exhausted and it, just things weren't right. Um, and I somehow decided that I would stop doing music and would go into pre-med or, or, you know, I was envisioning, envisioning myself as a doctor somewhere down the line. So um, I'll not go into that now, but needless to say, I basically took two and a half years off from violin. I left Peabody, came back to San Francisco, was studying chemistry, was volunteering in the hospital. And then I did a study abroad in Vienna, Austria, and it had a music component, this study abroad through IES, um, which is like a big organization. And so I brought the violin, 
I think I played Sibelius concerto or something, but I hadn't really been practicing. And um, I was working with a Polish teacher named Barbara Gorzinska, and she was the teacher for this summer program, but she also taught at a private conservatory there called Priner Conservatory. So she said, I think you could, I don't know, be a violinist basically, and I think you should come study with me. And at that point, I was still kind of an unhappy person. I wasn't really happy studying chemistry or whatever. And I guess I kind of thought like, well, what the hell? Like, I don't care, why not? This sounds like a fun adventure. Um, so yeah, so then I stayed in Vienna for two years studying with Barbara in a basically unstructured way. I mean, I was a member of the conservatory, but um, it was mostly just a like one-on-one -on -one instruction with Barbara and her studio. And she was another teacher who had had a real career, like playing all the big concertos all over Europe and South America. She interestingly never played in the United States, but, um, but she made recordings. I have some of her albums. And her instruction too was really to the point. It was like, do this fingering, do this bowing. I know it works. I literally played it 150 times on every big stage. This is the way to do it. And not that I always agreed with her, but it was that sense of high standards, you know, and trying to be the best of the best. Not like, oh, learn this fingering because it'll make your finger, fourth finger stronger. It was like, you're gonna play this on the big stage and here's how to do it, let's get there now. So that was, um, that was awesome too. And I think that throughout my life with Camilla, with Barbara, with Way, also being in the youth orchestra, probably the most important thing I was really learning, even if I didn't really know it at the time, was a sort of cultural thing, like a culture of high standards, right? Or a culture of professionalism. Like the youth orchestra here in San Francisco rehearses and performs on the Davies Symphony Hall stage. Um, the conductors and the coaches are all from the symphony. They treat you like a professional, like your schedule is down to the minute. There's not a lot of like raw, raw kind of like, you know, kind of like gut level inspiration. It's like hyper calculated and just, they kind of demonstrate by example, this high standard. And I think I got that from Camilla. I got that from Barbara. Um, I didn't need a pep talk basically. It's just, they had set up a culture where if you wanted to be part of the culture, you had to hold yourself to the highest standards. And that kind of went without saying. And I'm super lucky to have been exposed to that and kind of know what I was aiming for from, you know, age, I don't know how young, basically when I started listening to recordings. Um, and that was just reinforced by all these people. Um, so after a couple of years in Vienna, I decided I needed a college degree because I had, I had spent a little bit of time at Peabody then transferred to USF to do chemistry. None of it added up to a bachelor's degree. And now I was like five, six years into my like bachelor college career without being close to a degree. So I was getting old, whatever. So I came back, uh, started studying with Way at the conservatory. Kind of had to start from scratch because I basically had like 80 units of chemistry and not much else. And, um, yeah, that's yeah, somewhere in there is where you and I met, obviously. And Wei, it was an interesting situation to be working with Wei because I had known him since I was a teenager. I had worked primarily directly with Camilla, which is where like his 
knowledge mostly came from. And so we had that connection and it was a little more like collegial than just teacher to student type of thing. We could sort of reminisce, reminisce about Camilla or it felt like a much more open dialogue than what I sensed he had with the other kids. Um, and that also I think helped me feel confident or, or like I was in that club, you know, of high standards and, and good players, just because I had that history and connection to Camilla and things like that. Um, yeah. And so Wei was basically my last formal teacher and we did that scale club and Wei kind of hired me as his assistant who ran the scale club and also gave some sort of like extra lessons to the younger students and things like that. And then he sort of as a surprise to everyone was tapped to become the head of Juilliard Tianjin. And so he was leaving San Francisco, moving back to China where he's originally from, even though he was no longer a Chinese citizen actually. And um, he was sort of basically like disappearing from my life. And uh, that was tough. And I think that may have also contributed to my motivation leaving school of trying to give myself as much structure and opportunity as possible because all of a sudden it felt like all my connections to these people who were helping me, my team, were gone. Camilla was, and still is retired and moved to Florida and no longer does anything to do with music. Uh, Wei was moving to China. My Barbara, my teacher in Vienna was still in Vienna and, and actually now has kind of moved back to Poland. I felt like now I didn't have anyone and a little lost so I think I tried to fill that in with as much opportunity and like self-motivation and um yeah performance opportunities as I could and then yeah just in the last year I've decided hey look I'm still performing I'm getting some good opportunities I need that team back and that's when I started um I played for Ian Swenson a couple times and then I've sort of found Simon James and uh, we're kind of at the beginning, but I think it's working well. And he's like my newest mentor. So yeah. That's awesome being proactive, not only to work on your opportunities, but also seek mentorship. And it's like if you're a professional sports player of any kind, you have a coach. It's like music is this weird thing where a lot of times we get out of school and we're like, oh, I have a master's. I'm a master now. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. It feels like uh, you don't need lessons anymore, but it's not true. It's like having that mentorship and having that continually being able to check in with someone knowledgeable is invaluable if you want to keep that high standard. Absolutely. And I think the sports analogy is pretty interesting because I, I mean, like I like sports. I've played sports my whole life. Not only do athletes always have a coach, like if you're on a soccer or basketball team, they have like trainers that work with them literally whenever they're practicing. Somebody being like, great job, do it one more time. Okay, five more reps. Like they, I'm not saying you don't have to be self-motivated and a hard worker, but they always have a team and an infrastructure around them, making sure they do every single rep of their weightlifting, even their nutrition. I think a lot of them have nutritionists telling them what to eat. I mean, like they have such a team that not only helps them from the technical side of developing their skills, but that mental sort of confidence level that, you know, I think there's really good culture in pro sports or, I mean, not, I'm not on the inside, but they do a really good job of being, of pumping people up 
like telling them they're at an elite level and then sort of combining that with the work they're doing. And like you say, music's different. And, you know, we, there is a lot of technical stuff that requires that same training as sport, but then it's also an art. So you're sort of supposed to be an individual and you're supposed to be kind of out on your own making new stuff. And I think we somehow get lost in the middle sometimes. Uh, and then plus I think there's that, what's hard in music is because there's, there's some like really great teachers and then there's so many people trying to be great as well that the hierarchy there, the kind of like teacher student language even, um, can be hard as a student to feel like when you're in a student setting, you almost kind of have this feeling all the time. Like I'm not a real performer yet because I'm still a student. You feel like you can't be a student and a successful performer because if I'm still a student, then I'm not ready to be a performer. I still have to learn about downbow staccato or something. But um, I guess I've realized lately that like, I don't know, I've got nothing to lose and maybe no shame or something, but I just, and, and what I think I've really found with Simon and maybe we can chat about this a little bit, but he's the right person for me in my, um, mental and my mentality right now where he treats me like an adult. Um, he treats me like someone who's already an artist and who is performing and I don't need to like pass his test to, for him to give me some stamp of approval. Like, like yes, you can perform at the 92nd Street Y or no, no, no. Like you would embarrass me as, as a teacher if you were to be out on the stage. It's not that. It's like, hey, you're already doing it. I'm here to help you. Let's sort of talk as not as equals, but as like people who love the instrument and are both trying to do their best. And that is super important. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something different in um, the quality and the relationship between someone 30 plus who's who's working with a mentor and continuing studies and someone maybe who's in their teens and is still coming up and still kind of needs that bit by bit instruction you know i think it's it's rare but important to be able to find a mentor who can work with work with an artist you know and help them develop as an artist yeah and i think the culture in music we always as performers are imagining as an extremely scrutinizing audience right when i'm preparing a piece if i don't do you know fourth finger versus open e or if i don't do some fancy bowing that's written in the music i'm like imagining this audience member that knows the piece better than me and is gonna like be like, oh, tut tut, you, you used open E or something. We have that built into us, I think, because there are this like long, there is this long legacy of great players. Um, but I think as teachers, and I know you're a teacher too, that even when you're teaching young people or working with people who do have, you know, a long way to go with their technique and things like that, everyone can be a performer at every stage and that's okay. And I think that the hierarchy or yeah, the kind of standards, it's a really tricky needle to thread. I know I was talking earlier about all these professional people I was lucky to have contact with that showed me what it's like to be a professional and, and to have high standards. But what was really involved there was not 
putting me down. It was somehow like raising me up, saying you're in our culture now and we're going to treat you that way and we expect a lot from you and, and we expect you to do your job. Not a like, you're not here yet. And so like keep kind of grabbing at our coattails or whatever. I don't know if that's the analogy, but I, I just mean that there, there's a nice needle to thread for students at every level, I think, as a teacher, where you say you're valuable and what you're contributing is valuable. And if you act like a professional, I'm treating you like a professional and we're on a team together. You know? Right. That's, that makes sense. And I was going to ask you, so in, as a teacher yourself, how do you think about that idea of creating a culture of high standards? Like, do you try to create that for your students? Like, how do you try to pass on that legacy that you've received from your teachers? I'm still working on it. <laughs> so, I mean, I know you feel this way, or sorry, I imagine you feel this way as a teacher, especially a younger teacher, where, you know, part of it is just the student themselves. And often you're kind of waiting for a great student, which I know, I know there's not that separate, like some people are great and some aren't, but waiting for the student who is passionate and focused and often it has to do with their family, like their parents or their siblings or something are supportive and say, hey, yeah, this is what you do, you're a violinist. So I think a little bit I'm still waiting. Um, waiting sounds so passive. I, I'm sure that in my career as a teacher, I will have some excellent students and um, I have been lucky enough to have some who are really focused and who are still young. And those students, I think, are receptive to all this info. As a teacher, I try to maintain a certain tone. Um, I really avoid a kind of punitive or harsh or like you need to do X or, or even express that I'm somehow disappointed because I don't, you know, I understand, especially kids like are just, everybody's their own person and some of them are less interested in violin than they are ballet or soccer and that's okay too. Um, I'm not sure maybe, in, and I'd love to hear what you say about this, but like maybe at a certain point we would end up kind of curating our studios as a way of saying, hey, look, like if you're not gonna practice regularly and I know you have soccer and ballet, then my studio is not the right place for me, unfortunately. And at that point, I assume then I'd be left with students who are active, sort of competitive in terms of trying to get better. Um, but right now, say my studio kind of has a spectrum and that's fine and I'm comfortable with it as well. But um, yeah, I'd love to hear what you say about that, or maybe you have some insight into younger teachers like us. Yeah, I, um, that's a great point. And I think when I was younger, I was a little, <laughs> when I was younger, I think I was almost, I had this weird, almost superstition that if I allowed my students to play badly, that would somehow like, I felt this allergy to poor quality because I was worried about exhibiting it myself. <laughs> so I, would, I was more harsh on my students, I would say, maybe five years ago. Okay. Um, I was like, 
trying to maintain artificially this high standard just because it was kind of bad for my ego to see my own students um, play poorly. However, I've, I think in the last few years, the quality of my students has increased a lot and my level of pressure on them has actually decreased a lot. Hmm. And I think at least the attitude shift for me is that some of my students are more serious. Some of them are less serious about the instrument. I'm trying to focus on the carrot rather than the stick, right? I'm trying to make, I'm trying to have them listen to great recordings and, and oh, look, you know, Ray Chen, he has this fun content. Ooh, two set violent, right? Um, Lindsey Sterling, whatever the fun, like inspiring stuff is, you can start there with really accessible stuff and maybe they'll, they'll develop some kind of more appreciation down the road or some of them already are more serious mine and, and one student came to me he and i asked oh have you been listening to recordings and he said oh i can't re decide between henrik zaring and james ennis i was like oh <laughs> was, teacher's dream yeah he got to <laughs> and um no but basically for me i think the only real um the only real time i might put up the pressure on a student is if they express to me that they want to be um, maybe pursuing it seriously or trying to competition or getting into college because then then you're really meeting the demands of the real world and it does I as a teacher am not doing anyone any favors by saying you're ready for this if they're not but what I'm what I hope to do for my for all my students is to prepare them, especially if they come to me young enough, prepare them well at an early age so that if they should decide eventually that they want to take this more seriously, they want to go into it as a career, that they have those tools and they have the preparation they need to do so. So I almost have an, an idea. It's all, almost like if you're taking violin for enrichment, if you're taking it for extracurricular, practice 20 minutes, 30 minutes a day. It's okay. 45 minutes a day. Keep it consistent, but this is how much you can do. If you're trying to become an artist, if you're trying to get to that, that next level, it requires more work. Um, if you're trying to get do competitions, whatever, it just takes more work. It's a different level of seriousness. But within what you're trying to accomplish with the violin, let's work on that, basically. I'm not, I'm not trying, I have not found it rewarding to try to push all my students into competitions because if they don't want it, it's going to just be painful for, for all of us. But, <laughs> but yeah. if you insist on good fundamentals for everyone, then if someone wants to take it to the next level, they can. Yeah. And I'm thinking just to add on to what you said, I recently had a student who actually just, he just came to me recently from a, a different teacher and they were looking for something different. And he's an eighth grader. I guess he's now going into ninth grade. Um, and he does, he really loves violin and he wanted to be in the youth orchestra. Um, and we, you know, I, we already talked about the youth orchestra once or twice here and I was in it too. And, and we're lucky to be in a place with such a great youth orchestra and it's super competitive. I mean, everyone in that orchestra is really talented. And I had this new student and he wanted to audition and I had to kind of have a frank conversation with him and, and more like his mom, but basically saying like, he's not going to get in. But I've had, you know, he's my second student to audition for the youth orchestra. I really, 
I think it's important sometimes to like reach a little above your level just to see what it's like. It's so hard to know. And I was almost uh, disappointed that they didn't have live auditions because the first student I had like two, three years ago who auditioned for the youth orchestra was feeling good, feeling confident. Like, yeah, he was doing well. I could play his scales. He was playing Mozart five and like it sounded decent, but like obviously you and I can tell the difference of like, it's just not there yet. And he went to the audition and he came back like shell shocked just by the people he could hear in the neighboring practice room, you know? And that experience was actually really important because there's some level that it's really hard for us as teachers. I mean, I can play super well, like look at this beautiful Brook concerto. And they sort of think, well, yeah, yeah, well, you're like three times my age and whatever. But for them to see another colleague their age doing it is really inspiring and important. So um, I was just mentioning a kid who auditioned this year, like a month ago. He was so responsive to what I sort of required of him before that audition. He had to make a video. And I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't using a stick or, you know, there's nothing punitive and I always keep like a positive tone, but I was basically saying, this is the standard. Like you just have to do this and it has to be completely in tune like most of the notes or something isn't a, a good standard anymore. And it was incredible. I mean, he, he must've been practicing three or more hours a day and he made so much progress in like a week or so. We had a very short amount of time that, uh, yeah, it's, it's not like stick versus carrot, but sometimes, yeah, it is something to aim for that can bring out something in a student that you didn't, even as a teacher, you didn't quite know was there. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, there is a lot to be said for not um, underestimating a student. Yeah, uh, giving like making sure that you allow the you encourage them in all the ways you can to pursue the highest level that they can. But you also leave the door open for them to surprise you if they really do um, get inspired and they really want to actually accomplish something above and beyond that. That 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 you're allowing you're allowing mental space for oh well the standard's really high but if you really want to do this it's, mm -hmm. it's capable or you're it's achievable if you work so yeah cool. exactly so maybe um maybe that's a good place to leave it for today i think we went a good amount of time yeah we did um, we'll, we'll have to follow up absolutely see what see what uh how we're uh dealing with the pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic activities in the next few months. But thank you so much. It was an amazing conversation, as always. Yeah, as always. I was just going to say the same. I, I love talking to you about anything and in particular music. So anytime you want to talk, let's do it. Let's do a follow-up. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much. I'll see you around. All right. See you soon. Bye. Bye.